One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. And so she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you, but if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then when, uh, went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, to really appreciate this story and to understand what's really going on, this, this is one of those times when I put my imagination into, uh, into play here. I, as I try to describe Bible things, my inner writer comes out sometimes. And so this is what I wrote in my notes about this story. Early in the morning, the workers began carrying the barley harvest to the threshing floor. Some was carried in deep baskets hung from the donkey's back, and much was carried atop the heads of women who were carrying shallower baskets. They emptied to the west of the threshing floor. It was a large slab of rock, worn smooth and shiny by years of use in that way. It was within view of the city gate, and it carefully located in the best terrain for catching the prevailing winds that would arise later in the day. So you picture the scene here. The threshing floor 
isn't inside a barn or something like that. It's actually in a perfect little bowl or basin in the land that opens to the west. And ideally, it's near the city gate because it makes transport less complicated, makes it easier to sell your wares. So many of the farmers had what they called threshing floors in the different places around the city gate and all had the same qualities. They had found or dug out a kind of basin that opened to the west. And in that area along the Mediterranean Sea, well, people could count on a west wind, a zephyr to come blowing in every evening. And so they used that to their advantage and they always wanted to find a place with flat stones because it was nice and smooth. And the idea was is that they would take the barley and the sheaves and they would kind of toss them with their pitchforks up into the air. And then that wind would pick up all the lighter stuff, all the husks and all of the stuff around the grain nugget itself and sort of just drift off into the wind, continuing its westward journey, and the nuggets of grain would fall to the stone threshing floor. Can you picture this? And so these threshing floors were places where the farmers very cleverly used the wind to help them sift the wheat from the chaff or the barley from the chaff or that lightweight material that wasn't of any particular value. And of course, after they had completed their harvest and completed the threshing of the, of the grains, they would then celebrate the end of a great season. They could see that pile and see their profits. They could see the benefit of their labor there, and so they would celebrate. But in this particular case, Boaz is working into the night. And I imagine him there even in the night, maybe with a full harvest moon, because they use the same sort of of uh, farming techniques we do. They try to take advantage of the, the conditions that make for the best farming. And so they would probably, by the moonlight, Boaz and his foreman were continuing to shovel these, these uh, sheaves of grain up into the air and watching as the moon sort of made the chaff glitter in the light of the moon. And then the grains would start falling down to this bedrock flat, surface of stone. Then they would take simple whisk brooms that they made themselves and sweep it all into a great pile. And then after the harvest had been completely gathered and threshed, the men would lay down around their pile in a strategic way so that there was no way someone could step into their circle of sleeping bodies and steal their grain or their barley harvest. And this way they protected it until the next morning when they would take it to the market. So there's the scene. And Naomi, she's helped carry the sheaves to the, the threshing place, no doubt, because she's working with those laborers that were employed by Boaz, and I imagine her going home, and there she sees her mother-in-law, Naomi, sitting very quietly, tending to her household chores and not saying a word, deep in thought. And finally, she looks up at Ruth and says, oh, hello, dear. Is the threshing done? 
And Ruth told her that Boaz was still working into the night. I want you to go to the threshing floor after he is asleep and lay at his feet like the servants sometimes do. Then lift the hem of his robe from his feet and turn it back below the knee. He'll understand. Naomi instructed her because, you know, Ruth was brand new in this faith in God, Yahweh, the God of the people of Israel. And Naomi was well-schooled and she and her husband were very devout people who, after all, were not participating in the chaos of the time of the judges. And even Elimelech called himself, God is my king. And so Naomi knew the rules. She knew the law of Moses and she was instructing Ruth in this. She was helping Ruth to apply the law in a way that would serve her and glorify God. Naomi was being very selfless because she was just thinking about what was best for Ruth. But Ruth never stopped thinking about what was best for Naomi. And that's what's so remarkable about this story. Because it relied entirely on the good character of all four of the players involved. That's right, four. Because there's Ruth and Naomi, Boaz, and God. And they're relying on God's character. They're relying on the... The, the confidence they have in God who has given them the law to use the law in a way that serves all purposes and needs. And so when she is to lay down at Boaz's feet, this is, this is one of the most confusing parts of the story. And it's really important that we understand some side things that will help it come together for us. See, the hem of a man's robe was a vital identifier. The robe that men wore in those days, since they didn't wear pants, they wore robes that went down to their ankles. And the hem of the robe had uh, usually always had blue thread in it, and it always had some sort of unique pattern that identified their particular family. And we've already heard that Boaz was a man of renown. He was somebody that was well-respected in the community. Uh, some say he was probably uh, a great military leader who in his retirement had become a farmer. And he was very well-respected. And the hem of his robe had stitching in it that, came, that, that gave a clear indication of his authority and his status among the people. This stems from the tradition that goes all the way back to the book of Numbers, where God instructs them to put a th thread of blue in the hem of their garment so that it would indicate their constant reminder to the, be obedient to the law of Moses. And so the people in their vanity had taken it a little further. And the more elaborate the design of the blue thread, the holier you must be. And so the most devout people, at least as everyone agreed about it, had even more elaborate blue and white thread in the hem of their garment, not only at their ankle, but also around their wrists and a lot of times around the opening that your head went through. Nowadays, they still do it, you know. It's just that the men will wear prayer shawls. And so if you go someplace where there's a high concentration of Orthodox Jews, you'll see men especially in special occasions and special locations, they'll have a prayer shawl draped over their shoulder and perhaps pulled over their head. 
and it will be white linen and it'll have lots of frills and lace and tassels and things in it. And all of this is meant to be an indication of their devotion to God and the law. So coming back then to this scene where Ruth has laid herself at the feet of Boaz and lifted the bottom of his hem of his robe up over his feet and away from his feet. It's a symbolic gesture and believe me, that's as far as it went. She wasn't doing anything that might be considered colorful. She simply was, according to her mother-in-law's instruction, putting herself under the authority of Boaz. She's laying at his feet, which servants often did, as a way of being ready to immediately respond to the master's need. And she has exposed his feet, and feet are really a big deal in the Middle East. I just tell you this as an aside, if you ever go to Israel with me or something, people over there in that part of the world consider it highly offensive to see the bottom of your foot. So if you like to sit with your legs crossed, if you do so in a way that puts your foot out facing upward, people will be very offended by that. They might even think you're trying to insult them. So feet are a big deal. Shoes are a big deal. And it all comes back to this biblical culture. And uh, again, just a little aside, you must recall that while they were wandering in the wilderness for those 40 years, they never had to buy new clothes or new shoes. It mentions that in Joshua. And so there's something about shoes and something about the garments that is a God-related thing that we want to notice. And so what has happened then is Boaz has awakened in the night because after all, they're guarding their food. They're guarding their prospects of wealth and good fortune for the next year. And he feels like someone is in the room. Have you ever had that feeling? You know, you wake up because something just feels out of sorts and there she is laying at his feet. And he says, who are you? And, and she says, it's Ruth. Well, if you haven't noticed yet, he's kind of fond of her. He's, he's taken a real interest in her. And what he sees is not a woman who's throwing herself at him, but rather a woman who is making a request. She has, in effect, gone into his household, lifted that hem just a little so that he would understand that what she intends is that she might become a member of his household. She's, she's sort of proposing marriage, which is why... Boaz responded the way he did. He says, uh, you know, there's a lot of younger, better looking guys out there, Ruth. Why would you pick me? But I'm glad you did. And, you know, we don't see it described exactly, but basically he's taken his garment and he's turned it back down over his feet and sort of ceremonially laid it a little bit of that tassel or, or hem or whatever it was then that design sort of laid it over her just a little bit to sort of say your wish is granted as far as I'm concerned however this is why it would make such a great Hallmark story you know if you watch Hallmark movies at Christmas time you gotta love this one however there's someone who's a little more closely related to you than I am and before I can marry you and take all of your affairs into my household and settle all of your debts and provide for all of your needs henceforth, well, 
we've got to check in with that guy. And if he's willing to do his duty, then so be it. And you know Boaz is going, yeah, I hope he isn't. I really like her. And then we have to wait till two weeks from today. So tune in in two weeks for the exciting conclusion to Ruth and Boaz. Now, what does this mean to us today? The hem of his robe. Like I said, this goes all the way back to Numbers chapter 15 where they're told to put tassels and blue thread on their robes as a way of showing their commitment to righteousness. I mean, think about it. How many of us wear clothes? I suppose when we put those little fish symbols on our cars, we're committed to righteousness. This is why I don't have one on my car. If there's a place where I'm going to look unrighteous, it'll probably be in my car. Right? You know, I complained about the stop signs a few weeks ago, and I hope I didn't offend anybody. But the truth is, is if you're brave enough to put one of those fish symbols on your car, you're going to have to drive in an exemplary way. I can't do it. If you're going to wear a shirt that says, I love Jesus, you better live like it. You know, we do these things and we want to say to the Lord, I'm not ashamed to serve you. I'm not ashamed to love you. But the truth is, they are all signs of a commitment to a kind of lifestyle and commitment to the Lord that we have to live up to if we're going to advertise it. And that's what this really boils down to. The hem of the robe, the tassels, those were things that told people of your commitment to righteousness. Jesus dressed this way. Here's a couple of things to keep in mind about Jesus and the hem of his robe. First of all, Jesus had a particularly unusual garment that he wore because his robe was woven from one uh, piece of cloth. It wasn't stitched together. It was one long piece of cloth that would have been basically folded at the middle and a hole made for his head and his arms, and then it would have been shaped and trimmed until it was stitched together into a beautiful garment of one solid piece of cloth. That's why it is death. The soldiers gambled over it because they didn't want to tear it up. It was too valuable as it was. His garment had particularly beautiful adornments that indicated to anybody who he was and the level of righteousness that he maintained. This is why that woman who had the issue of the blood said, look, if I could just touch one tassel on his garment, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. And even in doing that, Jesus was aware of the power that was going out to her. See, the hem of the garment's a really big deal in the Bible, and maybe some of you are saying, I've never heard this before. But it represents authority. And all throughout the story of Jesus, we see these indications, even in the description of his clothing and the way people uh, viewed him in his appearance as signs of his authority over everything. Even at his death, they're acknowledging that his garment was an indication of a peculiar authority over something, though they didn't know what. Because, well, it was the way people set themselves apart. You know, we do it, we do it today. Everybody dresses in a way that, 
is sort of your personal statement, isn't it? I mean, some of us, you know, I, I think I can speak for most men my age, you get to a point where it's really more a matter of comfort than anything you want to prove, you know, because I don't have much left to prove. I just like to be comfortable. So, but then again, there are times, you know, when I put on the clergy collar, there are times when I put on the suit and the tie. It's because we're trying to make a statement with the clothing we wear. We're trying to say something in our appearance about the respect we have for the other people involved in the situation. We're trying to communicate. When I, I always wear my clergy collar for weddings, for example, because I find that it helps me stay in charge. <laughs> and that's very helpful, you know, because sometimes weddings get a little chaotic. And if I've got the collar on, I can go tap, tap, tap. I got this. It's an immediate communication of some kind of authority. It doesn't count for much outside of this sanctuary, but it's quite useful here. And so our clothing can say something about us. Perhaps young people, this is why our parents tell us, you know, that's a little inappropriate. Why don't you go back and try again, right? You tell your daughters and sons, don't do that. And you might confuse them by trying to make it about decency and that sort of thing. And we do understand what we mean by that. But when it's all said and done, it's what we wear that says something about our value and worth. When we stand before God in judgment, are we going to stand before him dressed like tramps and bums? Or are we going to stand before God and have him see us? wearing our version of the tassels and the hem that says, I'm committed to righteousness. It's not just the clothing, is it? It's really the whole countenance of our being. It's our personality and our character that's being communicated. And that brings us all the way back around to these three people we've met. Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. They're all people who are committed to righteousness and their deeds show it. And it's most evident in the love that they show for each other. And all of this comes back to then that fourth player, God, whose deeds show it by the provision and the protection, by the constant movement just a step ahead of the people involved who are committed to his love and service to him. And so I want to tell you as, as your pastor and your friend, that the Lord is longing for you in the same way Boaz longed for Ruth. And the Lord is eager to provide for you, eager to throw the hem of his garment over you and say, now you're under my protection. Now you're part of my household. But just like Ruth, you have to make the first move. Like Ruth, you have to say, I do want to be part of your household, Lord. Please accept me. You have to be willing to give up your authority over yourself and lay like a servant at his feet. Putting all your future and your hopes and dreams in God's hands and hoping that when he is ready, he takes the hem of his robe and lays it over you and says, you are now mine. I've often thought that maybe this is a, something that was in Jesus' mind when he was on the Mount of Olives looking over at the city of Jerusalem and he was weeping as he looked at Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, you killed the prophets. Don't you know how badly I want to cover you like a hen covers her chicks? 
I can picture him saying, in effect, I want to throw my garment over you and hold you close to me and protect you and take care of you and to assure that no matter what happens, I'll be with you and I will have you in my home for all eternity. This is what we seek. This is why we study this story, because it's really a love story about God's love for you and me and God's desire to care for us, to settle our debts, to look out for all of our needs, and to save us for all eternity. If you haven't accepted that gift, I pray you'll do so today. Don't wait a moment longer. Let us pray. Oh God, I thank you for your word this day. I thank you for the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and the way that it teaches us about your character and your great love. Lord, extend your hem of protection over us. We are willing. We say yes. Protect and provide for this congregation and its ministries as a church called Shiloh so that it might serve you in a way that makes people see your authority at work in and around us. And for our members and our friends and all those who are part of this family of faith in whatever way, I pray that they might all know you as their master, their friend, and their savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.